Welcome to the Who, What, Why podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sheckman. For much of our 246 years, we were a young, dynamic, striving country. Sure, we had flaws, we made mistakes, we took wrong turns, but we believed deeply in our ability to learn from those mistakes and to move the country forward. Today, it seems that we're caught between that young, energetic country and some of the more mature but less dynamic nations we see in Europe, for example. We are like a mean, angry adolescent nation, ready to fight with anyone and about anything. When the James Dean character in Rebel Without a Cause was asked, what are you rebelling against, Johnny? The answer was, what do you got? We are like that adolescent. Some are rebelling against our founders, some against our institutions, against our diversity, our technology. Essentially, what do you got? Like any adolescent, maybe we will outgrow this. Or will there be enough time before we destroy the very fabric of our democracy? We're living in a high school lunchroom with cliques and anger and hormones and guns and bravado. We'll either graduate to the next level or we'll take the world's longest time out while China and the rest of the world pass us by. We're going to talk about this state of the nation today with my guest, Michael J. Mazer. Michael is a senior political scientist at RAND. Previously, he worked at the U.S. National War College, where he was a professor and associate dean of academics. He was president of the Henry L. Stimson Center, a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, a senior defense aide on Capitol Hill, and a special assistant to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He holds a Ph.D. in public policy from the University of Maryland, as well as an M.A. and a B.A. from Georgetown. He is the author of a recent RAND report entitled The Societal Foundations of National Competitiveness, an unsexy title, but a report that goes to the heart of whether or not we ever leave that lunchroom. It is my pleasure to welcome Michael Mazur here to the Who, What, Why podcast. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Of course, really delighted to be with you. So I loved your introduction, and I thought a lot of the themes were really brilliantly stated. Um, our work would almost suggest that um, the United States may have passed through its adolescence as it sort of rose to global power and um, uh, it's sort of the late 19th century, early 20th century. And now the question is, are we reaching middle age? Mm -hmm. Are we reaching sort of a cranky middle age where uh, the energy is starting to flag, uh, some of the idealism is starting to go, and um, uh, we become that, you know, old cranky person out on the lawn, <laughs> hollering, at, <laughs> hollering at things that uh, they don't like and shouting into the wind. So I think it's you know, really, uh, we didn't set out to investigate this question specifically, but one of the issues that came up in our research was, uh, as you put it, this idea of uh, reaching a phase in a, in a national uh, lifespan where the drive, the energy, the optimism tends to flag. So often we get caught up in, in the minutia of this and we're looking at, at the politics and the, the, the various aspects of what's going on and we lose sight of the bigger picture that all these things are simply symptoms of a much larger situation. Right, exactly. And, and I think so much of the, the partisan fury right now is a distraction from that. Um, there's a really useful discussion to be had about um, are there ways in which the country is moving in the wrong direction? Are there ways in which um, the values that created dynamism and, and a strong competitive position are ebbing? But that discussion 
is not the same one as the the just really fragmented hyperpartisan uh, debate that's all too often going on now. So yeah, part of what we're trying to do with the work is, as you're putting it, um, put some attention back onto the the bigger picture and uh, the ways of how do you think about it if you're trying to decide um, is a nation uh, losing its energy um, and what are the characteristics that we have to attend to uh, to renew that energy? What are the answers to those questions? That, that's what we tried to look at. How important is it, before we talk about some of the, the, the seven specific areas that, that you've identified, how important is it to understand where the inflection points were, how we got to this point, what were the specific things that really got us to this stage that we're at now? Well, that's a really good question, and it's actually not, um, I mean, we looked at sort of long-term trends. I mean, the most, you know, one important thing about to say about the study is, as you know, um, is the part that applies these trends to the United States is just one chapter. And the, the majority of the research we did was trying to look at history to say, what are the right criteria to judge uh, national competitive uh, position? Um, so in that sense, we didn't do sort of a, a long-term historical assessment of the United States to say, where were the specific choices, where are the inflection points? We more looked at current trends in a variety of these areas and said, you know, which way are they heading? That obviously begs the, an interesting question that you're asking, which is, okay, well, if uh, social opportunity and and the uh, ability of most Americans to express their talents in a way that gives the country competitive advantage, if that's stagnating or moving in the wrong direction, where are the decisions, the events, uh, the factors that produce that. But we didn't, that really wasn't so much a part of our analysis in, in this phase of the work. Right. And and the reason I ask it has less to do with, with perhaps what those points are, but in the broad historical context that you, you've looked at in, in other countries and other situations, whether there is something in, in our situation that has to do with technology, that has to do with the speed of information, the speed at which decisions are made today, that somehow alters that historical framework. You know, it's always the scariest words on Wall Street, as we hear over and over again, is this time it's different. You know, yeah. is, is this different, really, fundamentally? So I think one of the biggest, so uh, in, a, in a variety of ways, every major historical epoch is different um, in in. From, from key uh, periods that went before. Um, and then there are obviously areas of, of similarity. I mean, one area of similarity, I think, is the issue of sort of human capital and talent and uh, maximizing the degree to which a society can tap into the talents of its people is something that goes back to ancient times. But I think, to me, the biggest area uh, that sort of reflects what you're talking about and, and involves um, a significant change involves the information environment. And that's something we stress in regard to one of the trends um, uh, being a learning and adapting society. And uh, there's now, you know, with a combination of, of the speed of information, the massive and constant flow of information, the decline of mediating information institutions, whether it's mass media or experts, um, and the rise of social media, uh, sort of professionalized misinformation and disinformation. 
I think there's now an open question as to whether what we have called the marketplace of ideas can still work in the same way anymore. And if it can't work in the same way, then that is a, a significant difference from a number of prior eras. And it means potentially that open societies lose some of their competitive advantage because typically we say a democracy, a market um, society has advantages because it has a lot of grassroots energy, lots of different ideas come up. Those ideas are debated and, and whether it's in science or in business models, um, and eventually the more successful ones uh, emerge as opposed to more of a centralized system that's mandating those things. Well, if if your information environment isn't working properly because of these relatively new trends, uh, then does that sort of grassroots marketplace of ideas still have the effectiveness that it did in the past? So that's just one area. And there are some others where, as you say, uh, some of the new technologies definitely are creating a different context for national competitiveness than existed before. Part of that is that the learning and adaptive nature of the information that you talk about is somehow gotten so far ahead of the institutions, because one of the areas you also talk about is effective institutions, that those things are so out of sync that that's a big part of the problem. That's absolutely right. And, you know, I think one of the big uh, trends that, that uh, relates to institutions and also another um, one of our characteristics, what we call an active state, sort of the role of governing uh, um, institutions and creating a, an environment for competitive advantage, is that, as you say, for, for a variety of reasons, um, and in a lot of these cases, the, the, the reasons why these, these trends are rising isn't entirely clear, aren't entirely clear, but... Um, Institutions are unable to keep up with the um, challenges in societies. And um, we see that at the local level, at the state level, at the federal level, this consistent notion, whether it's, you know, the IRS doesn't have enough staff and uh, technological competence to keep up with tax returns to down at um, – the local level, um, you know, whether it's uh, law enforcement or health or a variety of other institutions that in different places have challenges sort of keeping up with what's going on. And that feeds into this, you know, where we just saw a couple of days ago, Gallup released its latest poll on Americans' confidence in major institutions. And it's a, an all-time low in measuring, which shouldn't be surprising, but that sort of an institutional crisis is really dangerous for free societies. Because when people lose a sense that their public and private institutions, the things that are supposed to keep society coherent, solve problems, and give us a faith that the future is going to be better, when those institutions have lost their credibility, um, people start looking for sometimes pretty dangerous alternatives. Talk about the difference that, that you found in terms of, of loss of faith in institutions, public versus private, and the degree to which that loss of faith is, is equal to or different in those two areas. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And it's, um, I mean, generally speaking, if you go by the poll and survey data, um, it's it, it appears that uh, Americans have lost significantly more faith in public institutions um, in the in the branches of federal government um, they're a little more confident in in local government because it seems more responsive but still a lot of challenges there um, in the uh, 
perceived credibility and honesty of public servants. So, uh, and then you have a number of private or uh, small business, for example, is at the uh, the top of the list, I think, with something like a 70% approval rating or a, a faith rating, confidence rating in Gallup's latest poll. Um, big business has slipped, um, uh, but a number of other private sector organizations are still higher. You know, partly that reflects this endless debate in the United States about um, sort of the shared responsibility for uh, managing social problems between public and private institutions, and this argument about civil society, uh, Putnam's bowling alone argument about a big problem in post-war America has been the decline of a lot of uh, the sort of membership in um, and and role of, of private sector institutions of various kinds, not just business, but um, various kinds of organizations. Um, and the it, at its be, at the best, you know, the public and private institutions had this healthy synergy where you had this what we call an active state <clears throat> doing what's necessary to create a general uh, positive environment for solving social problems, for competitive dynamism, and then private sector organizations creating a lot of connections between individual citizens and and activities that are addressing social issues. And that whole dynamic is sort of grinding down a bit um, in a variety of ways. So. The basic answer to your question is people appear from polling to have more faith in private uh, non-governmental institutions than they do in government ones. But even those are declining, and I think the bigger phenomenon is just um, the, the loss of a sense that uh, we have collective institutions, both public and private, that can create dynamism, solve problems, and and create a, a more positive future. And that goes to, to this idea of national ambition and will that you talk about, because if you don't believe that problems can be solved or that there aren't either public or private institutions that can solve those problems, it causes that ambition and will to just be sapped. Right. Absolutely. And and I think that there's other um, aspects to the, piece, the, 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 the issue of ambition and will besides faith in institutions. It's just kind of a general, uh, you know, we borrowed this phrase. There's there's an Italian historian who uses this phrase of the energizing myth of a society that uh, Kenneth Bartlett, the Renaissance historian, um, has kind of repopularized that phrase. And I think that that phrase has a lot of weight to it, that this energizing myth of the United States, getting back to sort of your introduction and a lot of the the, the uh, descriptions you were using, the United States and a lot of countries in their phase of growth and uh, greatest period of ambition have this notion of uh, a, a, a hopefully a positive and a productive um, and to some degree altruistic energizing myth of what the country is about and a drive and an ambition. And interestingly, we find this both internationally but also domestically, that it another hallmark of it is sort of a domestic environment of competition, ambition, striving, um, work ethic, all of that goes together, uh, a people that is determined to make a mark in their personal lives and also in the life of the country uh, in, in, in the, on the global uh, scene. And, you know, there's all kinds of evidence, polling and otherwise, that um, that has been ebbing in the United States for some time. And it's it's a... Um, a characteristic that can easily go wrong. I mean, as Paul Kennedy argued decades ago, overreach is one of the 
communist routes to national decline. And if you have excessive ambition and you run around the world invading people and and, um, doing things that ultimately sap your strength, financial and otherwise, that's not a good thing. But that basic sense of an energizing myth that the, the people of a country believe that there is something inherently unique and valuable about their country, and they are determined um, to uh, both in, in sort of their careers and so on, and in, in the role of their country in the world, um, to to fulfill that ambition. That's something that is um, universally present in countries that are at the peak of their competitive dynamism. Is there an analogy to be made beyond the geopolitical historical analogies that you talk about? Is there a corporate analogy to be made? We see so many times companies that, that as startups in their early phase, have this, this kind of dynamicism. And as they grow, as they get larger, as they get too large and too complacent, they, they kind of die away. I mean, there's so many companies that, that have never been able to pivot to modernity and, and have gone away. Is there something that we can learn from that? Because one of the things that seems to be inherent in those stories is the culture of the company and yeah. and how that culture either allows for or doesn't allow for the company to pivot. Is there something we can learn from that? And does that in some way go to the heart of of the cultural divisions that we see in this country today? Well, that last part of the question is really fascinating, and I'll, I'll try to, to get to that. Uh, it's tough to answer, but but the general question about the corporate analogy is absolutely right, and, and that notion of the, the basic sort of cultural mindset of an organization, of a country, of, of a social group is really what we're trying to get after. And in fact, um, we started off our research looking into a bunch of literature on uh, national culture and national outcomes, and it's a very sort of disputed field because it can easily become, you know, simplistic assertions about Western culture is, is better than others. But, you know, it doesn't have to be exclusionary in that sense that, and, and folks that say culture is not so important will say, well, you know, a hundred years ago, people said Confucian culture was not aligned to economic development because Europe was so far ahead. And now we say Confucian culture is a better source of economic development than uh, the West at the moment. So these things can change, but there are a certain set of cultural practices. And the mention of the business literature on this, I think, is very apt because, you know, the business literature on corporate culture is not trying to say there's one, you know, company or one regionally associated culture that's the best. It's just trying to uh, identify certain characteristics of corporate cultures that succeed and fail. And we're trying to do the same thing with countries. And you're absolutely right in terms of the life cycle that, um, you know, a a good deal of the literature on that talks about um, how as companies get bigger, they get more bureaucratic, they get more rule-bound, they get more conservative, they get more focused. I mean, especially in a shareholder environment, they get more obsessed with um, quarterly returns as opposed to innovation and new product development. Um, and, you know, as you know, there's this, uh, there's been a lot of research on ways in which companies have tried to break out of that. For a while, the popular route was, well, break out your research, uh, you know, uh, aspect, your innovation piece 
into some equivalent of a Bell Labs or um, you know something that is freed from the bureaucracy of the larger corporation. And in in national security, they're doing the same thing. They've tried to create little defense innovation units and um, uh, exempt certain kinds of procurement from larger DOD regulations. But it's an open question whether walling off a little uh, reservoir of innovation in your larger bureaucratic organization really works. I think now some of the literature says it didn't work that well for some of those companies. So all of these issues and these dynamics of um, as organizations, as countries become big, successful, powerful, but then ultimately over-institutionalized, over-bureaucratized, um, you know, and then to your last question, I think what can happen is when that sense of uh, uh, slowing energy sets in, when the, the, the country or the company is not as successful anymore, when there's not as many resources to go around, then you begin to have uh, frustration. You begin to have worry about what, you know, whether they can remain competitive. And that can then feed into what becomes sort of a, a fragmentation of the organization or the country as people break off into different sort of groups and debate and, uh, you know, can no longer get consensus on where they're headed. So that whole issue of life cycle and the role of culture and dynamism is there's a lot of commonalities between the corporate literature and the literature on countries. And to that end, I'm reminded of the, the famous Peter Drucker quote, quote, that that culture eats strategy for lunch. Absolutely right. And, and you know, it, it's funny you mentioned that. We published a couple of years ago um, uh, some work on – we were asked to look into strategic planning in the U.S. Air Force. And, um, it, you know, one of the findings was – the same. I mean, it's not unique to the Air Force. It's true of the Defense Department writ large. It's true of all government agencies. It's true of many big companies. You know, uh, uh, an implication of what we're talking about is the 1950s view of strategic planning has now sort of gone by the wayside. And part of the reason why is is that being, you know, um, super bureaucratized, large plans with hundreds of measured outcomes. Uh, a, a plan that stretches out five years and tries to dictate where the organization will be. Um, and part of the reason why that, I think, is given way to, in a lot of cases, um, a more adaptive, reactive um, process that tries to be more bottom-up and have more grassroots innovation is this very idea that old-style strategic planning created a culture that destroyed the strategies it was trying to promote, right? And so the whole idea is you have to create the right culture to get the right strategic outcomes that you want. But creating the right culture, as you know from, from the work of Drucker, from Shine and other you know, scholars of corporate culture, that is uh, one of the hardest things to do. Uh, and it's it's equally hard with at, at the national level. And that was the old policy in, in the DOD back in the McNamara era, right before and right after. Absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. The the whole what became what is now known as the PPB&E process, or was known as that. Um, it was, uh, you know, we are going to plan this to success. And the irony always was 
that that was the, the cultural characteristic of our opponent in the Cold War and was the reason why they lost the Cold War, right? And we're still struggling to escape the legacy of that sort of overplanned uh, mindset and culture of, of the DOD in the 60s and 70s. One of the other areas that, that you identify, one of the other seven areas, is this idea of, of a unified national identity. And I wonder how that relates to some of these areas that we're talking about. Yeah, it relates to a lot of them. I mean, it's one of the things that's probably closest to the things that are the issues that are in the news for the United States. Um, you know, in a number of the historical examples we looked at, uh, it's pretty clear that countries gain a competitive advantage and can sustain their coherence, their economic growth and dynamism longer when they have a more unified identity, not just one that avoids fragmentation, but one that promotes a, a, a willingness on the part of citizens to sacrifice for this um, identity. So in the cases of countries like Great Britain in its rise to to global prominence, the United States, earlier the Netherlands, when it was more briefly uh, kind of a world uh, leader in, in economic and, and even maritime military terms, um, those countries have an advantage from eventually getting to uh, a sense of unified identity that they know what it means to be in some level British, that people are proud of it, they will sacrifice for it. On the other hand, you have empires like the Ottoman Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, even the Soviet Union, which was a multi-ethnic empire that eventually uh, suffered huge competitive disadvantage because they were more fragmented, less unified. So that can be a factor that undermines the effect of other factors. You can have decent institutions, but if you end up being fragmented in those ways, it's going to be a big problem. And that, of course, is one of the most uh, worrying trends in the United States today in regard to the factors we, we looked at was, if, if you look at, obviously, a lot of the polling, um, increasingly Americans question the idea of whether at some fundamental level they think that they belong to a, uh, a clearly unified country with shared values, you know, for which they're willing to sacrifice at that kind of level. I don't think it's been lost by any means, um, but the trends are not good. In a way, it comes back around to, to the corporate analogy that if you look at some of these large companies historically that have been successful in, in, in pivoting and doing that turnaround, generally it's been by making them smaller. Yeah, by breaking them up or right. by finding ways to – yeah, I mean that idea of um, – and I forget if this was Jack Welch or somebody else, but the you know in one case, um, or it may have been IBM, but the, the, the notion was we're going to create the spirit of a small company in a big company right, body. Right. And that was always the goal. And I think now you know that that looked really promising for a while. And I think then people realized the difficulties of that. That if again, if you have, if you try to to break out small pieces of the company, it may or may not work. But um, yeah, that's in, in terms of sort of innovative drive. Um, now, a great advantage the United States has is, and so another, you know, one of our characteristics is diversity and pluralism. Um, when we can do it right, we have um, 50 state laboratories and hundreds of, of municipal laboratories of public policy. And there's lots of examples of uh, one state, a few states experimenting with certain kinds of things, whether in crime prevention or health care or a variety of other things. 
and then they share best practices. So just as, you know, it, it's almost like at the national level, we have a model that some corporations would die for, which is 50 and actually hundreds of different entities that are constantly experimenting and have the potential then to assess each other and take what works and pursue it. And that's not done on a very efficient, in a very efficient way, but it still is the, you know, essential pluralistic model of the country. So there's a lot, you know, one of the themes of, you know, findings we come up with is in a lot of structural ways, the United States still has the potential to reflect the characteristics we identify much more um, powerfully than our main rivals, even China. Uh, the trouble is we just have some of these particular social problems right now we need to solve. But that's one reason why I'm I'm still optimistic that the United States, um, as as we are organized as a nation to govern ourselves and in terms of some of the basic societal values and habits, we're still in a reasonably good place uh, to compete very um, if very well. It's just that you know, there, there's a few roadblocks in our way right now. And one of those roadblocks is the organizational structure itself. I mean, there are there are clearly constitutional problems that kind of stand in the way of some of the things that we probably know we need to do. Yeah, that's true. That is true. I mean, there are. So it's almost like the, the grand structure is 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 uh, I, I think has, still has some advantages, but there are discrete issues, and you know, sort of gerrymandering is a great example of this. That um, it has become a structural um, support system for our fragmentation, and is obviously used in partisan ways um, to take political communities that if you structured them differently, it would maximize their commonalities and structurally magnify their differences. So um, that's one example of, yes, there are definitely some, and, you know, there's larger issues about the overall constitutional structure um, under which the country is governed. I think, you know, I think there's an argument to be made that the essentials of the national governance structure um, are still perfectly um, able to be aligned with the demands of the characteristics that we talk about in our work. Um, but there are certain specific pieces like the gerrymandering piece that, yeah, have become structural impediments. Which seems to leave two alternatives. Either we have to change some of the structural mechanism or we have to lean into the fragmentation. Well, yeah, that's true. I mean, I don't know what it would mean to lean. I mean, you know, leaning into the fragmentation could be just a much more highly decentralized country where, mm -hmm. you know, when you move from one state to another, whether you're taught, I mean, but I don't know how that's possible, you know, and I think at that point, you really do lose a national energizing myth. I mean, and, and the ability to lead internationally, if the United States is a country where um, if uh, you're a person of uh, a certain gender, if you're a person of certain sexual preference, whatever, you have fundamentally different rights and responsibilities in different states in the country. If the tax policies of the states, if the policies in terms of public health are, re are radically different in a way that are far different even than the members of the EU, for example, you know, different national entities. Yeah, the EU is an interesting example because you, you think of not so much states but regions of the country 
and and the national overlay, and you think about is the EU model something to look at? Yeah, although the EU does not, I mean, part of the the uh, shortcoming and and the difficulties that people often point to. Everybody wants the EU to lead as an institution, but it can't really because it's too fragmented, right? So that so I think you know I could imagine a world in which we don't have a civil war and it's it's totally peaceful. And 80% of the people in the country are living in areas that they think reflect their values, but it is a highly fragmented country. I really wonder if a country like that can lead internationally, though. Um, At that point, um, I think, first of all, you've lost the sense of um, a, a truly shared national sense of values, habits, beliefs that the country could could take internationally. Um, you know, it's often said there's a whole literature in, in international relations studies about how the, the, the foreign policies of countries are kind of echoes of their domestic political structure in some ways. Um, and if we become that kind of a country, uh, I think the credibility of our voice abroad, our ability to gather resources to do decisive things abroad, I think all of that would be fatally handicapped at that point. Unless it unleashed enough economic competitiveness that we we become a leader in terms so powerful in terms of economic force that it compensates for some of those other things. That's that's possible, but I I so my my instinct, and we did not stu- we did not um, kind of analyze this with with data or research in our study. But my instinct is um, <clears throat> that the economic inefficiencies. So in that kind of a world we're talking about, if you're a, a company operating in the United States, you might have three or four different environmental standards you have to meet. You might have three or four different labor standards. You know what I mean? So it becomes. You know, part of the, the the idea of the EU is precisely the opposite of that. Obviously, right? As you know, is sort of a a rationalization and a commonality of certain standards that creates greater efficiency. Well, if we move in the opposite direction here, there may be some areas that you know grow a little faster as a result of some of their changes. But I think the inefficiencies it would create from that fragmentation would be a bigger price than any benefit that that we'd get. And finally, are there historical models, co- countries that we can look to that, that provide some insight into this? So an interesting question. So, yeah, when we looked at a lot of them in terms of uh, we looked all the way back to ancient Rome, knowing that there are such tremendous differences. Um, but some interesting comparisons, I think, in terms of all these historical analogies of Rome and the Renaissance Italian states of Florence and the others and Great Britain during its rise and some of the countries that have had more more competitive challenges. Um, we looked across all those for lessons. You know, I think one of the, the really interesting questions now is the United States has hit these headwinds. And certainly internationally, there's a lot of doubt in whether the United States will recover. You know, as we started talking about at the beginning, this idea of are we approaching our middle age and can we recover energy? Can we kind of get back to some of our youthful energy? And that is actually, in a, in a new phase of the study, something we're going to be looking at of are there historical cases of renewed competitive advantage, countries or empires or whatever that got to difficulties? And there are some. I mean, going back again to, to Rome, there were a variety of times during the, the imperial period where people sort of 
said, okay, Rome is done now. I mean, you know, Rome was actually sacked and then returned to a significant degree of international hegemony. Um, the British Empire, uh, you know, lost the American colonies and then 100 years later was at a new peak. So a key analytical question for the United States is, as, as a great power, how do you get to a period of stagnation or even a bit of relative decline and then recapture the energy? Uh, those are the historical examples I think that's most powerful for the United States to look at right now. Michael Mazur, I thank you so much for spending time with us today here on the Who, What, Why podcast. Sure. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. And thank you for listening and joining us here on the Who, What, Why podcast. I hope you join us next week for another Radio Who, What, Why podcast. I'm Jeff Sheckman. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share and help others find it by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. You can also support this podcast and all the work we do by going to whowhatwhy.org forward slash donate.